Welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. And our topic for today is how to become a friend of taxman and how to use business structures to your advantage. Now, nothing in this world can be certain except debts and taxes. And so that is exactly what we are going to talk about. Not debt, but taxes. I'm going to introduce my co-host today. He's a very dear friend of mine, Matt. Tax director for IPG Investor Partner Group, tax director or the owner of Tax Wises as well. I have Suhail Merchant with me. <laughs> Hello, Suhail. How are you today? I'm awesome. I'm good. Uh, glad to be here. Glad to be part of this podcast today. Yes. And so a lot of our clients basically speak to Suhail first before they come and talk to me because because taxes are very, very important when it comes to property investing and you know any business decisions, right? That's true. Yes, yes. Uh, lots of people come and discuss their tax strategies before they invest in properties. And uh, especially they talk about negatively geared properties. And uh, for example, uh, one of my clients, they, they said um, that and their spouse, they're paying about 70K tax in a year. And they heard from other friends, their friends, that with the similar kind of income, they paid only 35K of taxes, their friends. So clearly in their mind, it is tax savings for them when, they, when it comes to the negatively geared properties. Uh, what do you think? It's not savings in my opinion. It's just complete wrong. Because what, what they are not looking at is they are not looking at the other side of the equation. They're just looking single-sided equation. And it, what I call is it's, it's a fool's theory. What uh, it, it, their disposable income is less uh, after losing about 3k a month in mortgage repayments. They are not looking at that side of the equation. They're just looking at how much tax they are saving, but they are losing some cash on the other side as well. Um, there, there's a difference between uh, positively geared and um, uh, positively cash flow properties. We can discuss a little bit more about it. But mainly, they usually focus on depreciation side of the things, which helps them to get the negatively gate property. Okay, that's uh, very true. Yeah, so tax that's depreciation. Lots of property advisor asks you to reduce your tax on actually. The, it's it's a it's a temporary benefit. Yes, it gives you some benefit in short terms, the depreciation, but it's not actually. Uh, it, it is it is it is a trap. Okay, so. Um, I can give you an explain. I can give you further explanation regarding how it works. But yeah, um, but let's take let's take a pause there. Yeah. And so I completely can relate to that. A lot of investors when they come and talk to me as well, you know, they've been talking to someone else or a sales agent probably who is mm. talking them about depreciation benefits, who is talking them to to them about how much money can you save uh, on a year to date basis or annually or you know the tax that you're going to get back. I was speaking to. This person last week, where he said, "Moss, I'm going to get forty thousand dollars back in the taxes," and he was so excited. And <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Why are you excited? You should be crying because you have spent ninety thousand dollars to get forty thousand dollars back. Like, how does that work? Like, so how about you give me ninety thousand dollars and I give you forty thousand <laughs> dollars back? That's true. Would that work?" And so I think it was such an eye opener for him when he thought about it in a simplistic term that he has paid ninety to get forty back. That's true. And I mean, so. Yeah. And so you think about positive cash flow and positively geared, definitely a lot of people are very confused about what is the big, bigger difference between positive cash flow and positively geared. I think what a lot of these salespeople are doing is 
focusing more on the positively geared side of the equation because from a cash flow perspective these these properties would potentially be you know negative but when you bring the gearing or when you bring uh, the tax side of things into the consideration they become positive is that right is that what we are talking about here from a positive cash flow and positive gearing perspective yes definitely i mean uh, just for the sake of people to understand cash cash flow positive is purely cash positive after tax versus positive when the property is positive even before considering the tax flow or tax implications the concept of positive gear property is also slightly expanded these days by considering limitations on loan that is truly a positively geared property also those that do not limit your borrowing capacity okay that's that's the people lots of clients are confused about these things they don't understand the concepts behind how it works basically the mechanics especially in terms of borrowing capacity so with changes in the new tax laws are coming through nowadays positive cash flow are usually brand new are for the brand new properties or brand new townhouses or um in the newer estate you buy property usually have no growth associated to them as its tax benefits associated are with fixtures and fittings that can only be claimed on brand new properties okay with yeah. the interest rate this low the only reason one should aim non positive cash flow property would be for development only and development potential properties in a growth suburb would they, they, those kind of property would seek higher potential exponential growth actually so does in order sure. to, so in sure. order to answer your question you would always get better value of money with in positively geared property in growth suburb even neutrally great, uh, geared property with value add in growth suburb is better than just off the plant brand new stock so yeah and let's expand on this a bit so when we talk about depreciation benefits of course uh, they are benefits that you get Correct. when you buy properties for be it brand new or be it property where there is a lot of renovations done how is depreciation benefit a temporary benefit talk to us a bit about what does deferred tax liability means i understand that but from the user's perspective yeah. what does that mean that it's a short term benefit and not a long term benefit yeah okay so let me explain say you you bought a property for 500k okay and you claim tax about 10000 depreciation a year after 5 years you have claimed about 50k in depreciation and let's say saved about 20 25000 in taxes okay great that's that's fine but now when when the clients they are ready to sell their property let's assume there's no growth in that property at all and, and uh, when they're selling the property they're getting the same price 500k and they sell the property at 500k they actually made a gain of 50k because their house is cost actually 450k and why because the the, the cost base has gone to 450k because they claimed 50k already in depreciation you have to reduce that amount from the cost base when you're selling the property so basically you're getting some benefit of some taxes in short term okay but eventually you have to pay tax on that amount you already claimed previously so it's 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 kind of sure. you're deferring your tax liability for future whenever you're going to sell the property it 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 goes on like for future years how for for how long you're going to claim to tax depreciation you're going to lose that in the cost base of the property so sure. i i don't think people should fall in this kind of trap um of the depreciation it's it's definitely it, 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 there are certain benefits of having negatively geared property especially when interest right. rates are higher Um, right. from a cash flow management perspective cash flow management is so not going to work for for the but i think one of the 
One of the core assumptions that you're making here, though, is the assumption that the property value does not go up, right? So yeah. you're buying a $500,000 property, you're claiming a depreciation of 50K, the value doesn't go up. And majority of the times where you're going to get rich, high tax depreciation, it would be a brand new property in a brand new growth corridor. That's true. The growth is probably eight to 10 years away. That's now, I was true. speaking to a, a really good real estate friend of mine yesterday, and he bought something in Point Cook in 2006 in mm-hmm. Melbourne. And he said, hey, Point Cook hasn't done really well. And I was like thinking, <laughs> oh, why does he say that? Like there is billion dollar property selling in Point Cook, right? And so <laughs> I asked him, when did you buy it in Point Cook? And he said, I bought something in Point Cook in 2006, a brand new schmick looking property in 2006 for $320,000 at that time. And so I said, how much is the value right now? And he said, about $800,000. And so he said, I've made 1.5 times. And I was like, yeah, but that's great, right? Yeah. But then I reflected that he has spent close to about 15, 16 years, 17 years. And so if you yeah. think about it, he was sold this idea of catching depreciation, catching benefits on depreciation. If he would have bought established property, probably in 2012 or 13, he would have made exactly the same amount of money. That's the true. property didn't go anywhere. That's right. There was no growth between 2006 all the way to 2013. Yeah. And so that depreciation benefit didn't do Much him a lot of justice. That's yeah. right. And so that definitely makes the point. And so this is great. I and mean, we are talking about taxes. Let's talk about taxman itself and the strategies that we would use to beat the taxman on its own game. Now, I understand that I have nothing against taxes. I know that That's you always say this, that we need to be It's a necessary evil, basically. You need that. 100%. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, you think about it, and it hand to heart, you know, I always say this, that this is like legalized robbery, right? The harder you work, <laughs> the more pain it is, you know? Yeah. I read it somewhere that it says that income tax has created more criminals in the world than anything else in the world. And when I say criminals, I mean tax in- invasions, right? Mm. You know, people do tax right. invasions. So if you think about it, you know, it's created more criminals in the world than anything else. And so what strategies can we adopt? Yeah, look, that can really help us to basically minimize the tax or play the game that the tax ban is playing with us yeah, while wow. still keeping them happy, but, you know, doing everything legally. That's right. I mean, everyone has to pay taxes. As you mentioned, debt and taxes are definitely absolute things. You cannot avoid them, but you can manage them effectively. That's the thing that you can't, I guess. But yeah, you, you, taxes, you can manage them with certain strategies you can employ. Um, you need to speak to your accountant and discuss these sort of things. One of the uh, strategy we usually discuss with our clients is the six-year rule, for example. It's a, it's a, it's a main resident exemption rule to avoid paying capital gains or ex, um, to, um, to use the capital gains tax exemption on main residences. Okay. So how it works, uh, you, when, when, when you have a uh, main residence, when you put your property you're living in and you put that property on market uh, as a rental property uh, and you don't have any other property as a main residence, you claim six years exemption when you sell that property. So how it works, basically, uh, you you are moving interstate, for example, or you you renting somewhere else because of the work situation. You, you rent it out, your principal place of residence, earn income from that property, claim expenses for that property. And with before six years, 
period is over, you move back in that property and and you sell that property after that there's no capital gains on that property, um, even though you earn some income from that property. So that's one of the strategy. Awesome. It, it, it cannot cannot be applied for everyone, of course, but it is case by case scenario. So it, yes. it, but you need to discuss with your clients. Some people, you don't even know. And they just say, they, they, even some accountants I have seen, they're claiming uh, they are putting the, uh, the, that property as a capital gains tax property because yes. they earned some money there. But the client 100%. didn't have any other property in Australia as a main residence. So time. you can, yeah, there, there are certain other things in 100%. detail you can do to manage that part. But yeah, it, it's, it's one of the strategies you can use. Yeah. So And so this and this is an interesting point. So, yeah. of course, you know, the, the idea behind this, the tax office, was that if you're re- locating from one place to another place you know you can use that strategy but this strategy can be used predominantly for rent investors as well where you can Correct. buy a property you know you can live in there claim the principal place move out rent west especially when you're young you are 23 24 year old you don't want a big debt you don't want a big house you can live in uh, a shared accommodation with the friends close to friends etc and so i still remember 2012 13 when i was when i did that strategy and i was having that conversation with you Mm. Uh, and we went out and spoke to a few different accountants. We thought, hey, is this really the right thing to do? Like, I, I remember having a conversation with one of my work colleagues at that time in 2012. And he was such a big person when it comes to investments. And I said to him, I'm renting my principal place of residence. And he asked me, huh, mm. how can you even do that? And I said, no, no, I'm 100% sure my tax accountant has told me this is an amazing set. So this is nothing new. This is something that has do. been That's there true. for yes. quite some time. Yes. It's just that people don't talk about it and people don't, accountants don't even know about some of these strategies that sit in the background. And so 100%. What other things can we think about when we are talking about saving capital gains tax and you know, beating the tax man to its own game. Yeah, when when I was uh, speaking to one of our clients, uh, mutual clients, uh, lots of people looking for properties to renovate, for example, okay, and they don't have any other principal place of residence. So it's it's renovate renovators delight uh, the capital gains exemption as well. You can, if someone wants to, if they purchase a property, occupy that property, and undertake renovation in that property, and then they'll sell that property only to move into another dwelling and repeat the process. Uh, they don't pay any capital gains, even though the property value has gone up because of the renovations, but you were living in that property at the time, or you can say that you were living in the property, then you, 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 it, it qualifies for the um, main residence exemption as well at the same time. And you, keep, you can keep repeating the same process. We, we know our clients that they have done that, right? So you, you know them as well. I know them as well. that They, they keep moving and jumping from one property to another. Uh, buy uh, rundown properties, do some work, live while working on the property, and then move on to another one. So you can Definitely. avoid, or I should not use the word avoid, but yeah, you can uh, <laughs> get you can qualify for the main residence exemption there. So I mean, there's yes. of course within the tax environment, there are lots of studies you can employ. Yeah, and um, other thing, other other clients they have used different structure, business structures to. For example, the family trust and discretion trust. And so trust is an interesting one, right? Yeah. So I always say this, that, you know, debt, taxes and children, there is no convenient time for them. Right? <laughs> They're <laughs> always funny. coming in at inconvenient times. And so I think trust is one of the ways that you can navigate and tax plan it in a lot better. And so when we talk to a lot of people, especially going out there, providing a bit of mentoring and coaching, you know, a lot of people don't know 
how to successfully use trust. And so let's dive a bit more into this. You know, uh, trust yeah. was something that was predominantly used by sort of very wealthy people. And it was something that, you know, was not provided access to the common men. And so we can see that now on an ongoing basis, it's a vehicle that a lot of people are getting used to more, not just from a, an asset protection perspective, but also from a tax planning perspective. So let's dive a bit deeper into this as to how many types of trusts are there and which is the trust that we should focus most on when we are talking about property? Yeah, it's true. So trust, uh, in essence, trust is a legal vehicle through which a third party or because trustee holds and directs assets on behalf of beneficiaries. Okay. The key elements of the trust arrangements are settler who creates the trust. Okay. Usually in our situation, accountants create the trust and the trustee who administers them, administers the trust and the fund where the income is received and the beneficiaries who benefits from that trust or income received from the assets. So one of the key features of many trusts is that there's separate ownership from the assets and the control, which can have both tax and asset protection implication, as you mentioned there. So basically, they're different kind of trusts. Um, predominantly, we use in, in a smaller scale business or a small investment or a small wealth creation vehicle. It's discretionary trust, which is usually a family trust. And families, they, they combine their uh, pool their money in a trust or the finances in the trust, buy property in the trust, and they have a discretion to use trust income. The property income is coming in the trust, and then when there's a time to distribute that income, they have a discretion and flexibility how they distribute that income to different beneficiaries. Okay, in a, in a family environment, beneficiaries are husband and wife and and kids. Uh, kids under 18, you cannot distribute any income to under 18, for example. It, this is common in any trust anyway. You can, but yeah, there are higher tax implications. Um, you have uh, your parents, um, adult children, uh, siblings, you can distribute some income. So it becomes a tax effective vehicle at the same time. And it keeps the asset within the family group as well, which is the protection at the same time. Uh, if there's any legal claim in your business or anything else you're working, for example, as a as an architect or doctors, usually they are very prone to legal claims. They employ these kind of strategies, especially trust structures, because it gives them that protection. You, you, as you, you're safeguarding your family asset or wealth while you making profit safely. So that's the idea behind the trust and discretionary trust is one of the very common trust people use to buy properties or invest in different, different investments, sure. not just property, maybe, but yeah. The other kind of trust, when you talk about discretionary trusts, I've seen people placing bucket companies within their discretionary trust as well, so that there are profits which you can't subsequently distribute to you know your family members or they're hitting that threshold. You would see them holding that profits in those bucket companies to save more taxes in the future as well. That's true. Talk to us a bit about that as well. Yeah, as the name implies, bucket company means you can keep bucketing your money in there. Yeah, so. Yeah, so in the trust, like unlike uh, uh, um, you, you can retain profits in the company, but in the trust, you cannot retain any profits. So by law, you have to distribute that those profits to the beneficiaries every year and every every twelve months. So sometimes you are not able to distribute, or you don't want to distribute certain income to a higher income earner because both husband and wife they are on a, on a 
employment where they're earning high tax, they are doing high, higher marginal tax rate. The income is high enough to pay lots of tax. And if you distribute some more income, they pay extra tax. Instead, you use additional company, which is called bucket company, where you can uh, distribute that income uh, to the company where you pay 26% tax and keep it there for a while, while uh, in, for future, you, you can take that money out slowly and recoup some taxes back later on. When the one, one of the family member is, has lower income for some reason for family planning or other things, study family planning, you, you have reduction in income, you can use that company to pay a little bit income and recoup some taxes there. So yeah, it, it's again, it's not that you're not paying tax, you're paying little tax or when you don't have to pay sure. more tax, then why? Why would you pay more tax? And can that bucket company further loan out that money to other projects or other companies or other trusts that you have in order to manage your books a lot better? Yeah, it is It is possible to use that company as a different vehicle, as an investment vehicle as well. But yeah, you, you have to structure in a manner that yeah, you can utilize that money to invest further or uh, use that in a different scenarios. Yes, it is possible. Yes. Sure. And so we have, we have talked a lot about the pros of the trust and we, you know, what about the cons of these trusts, especially when it comes to property investing? What do you think would be the key cons of some of these trusts? Yeah, I mean, that's a main thing usually where uh, people think that it's very costly to establish or uh, yeah, establish the trust and maintain them. Yes, it, it, it could be a little bit costly. Initial setup cost is around $1,500-$2,000. That's one of cost. And then you have to, every year, you have to lodge your tax and like you have to lodge your personal tax returns. So it, it, you have to do financials and things like that. So yes, one of the cons, you can say the costly, but I think uh, benefits outweighs costs there. There are certain limitations what you can do uh, with the property in under the trust. So there could be some disadvantages in that side, but usually there are not many, many limitations. When you go borrow, go to the banks to borrow within the trust because you're buying property in the trust, you could be the you need higher deposits sometimes. It depends how your mortgage broker is working with you. So sometimes it is difficult. You at least need 15% of deposit, uh, or not 15, maybe 20, 25%, 25% deposit for when you're buying the property in the trust and you're getting finance in the trust, right? Uh, they are, I mean, certain people are uh, worried about lots of paperwork as well. I mean, it's when you, when you buy it in the trust, there are additional paperwork to be dealing with and you need to deal with, I guess. So sometimes there are longer settlements with the property, but these things, I think, they're, not, they're, they're part of the uh, strategy, strategy, I guess, overall strategy. So, um, yeah. One of the key things that I've seen is that the loss is getting trapped into yes, the trust. True. I was going to say distribute that, yeah. it. Yeah, please. Yeah, so I was explore yeah, a bit yeah, more that's on a, that. That's the main thing that previously the trust were not so attractive for the investment because of the negative gearing, as we discussed initially. People were buying properties under the personal name because they could use the rental losses against their other income. In the past uh, 24 months or two, three years, when the interest rate are so low, it is not attractive anymore. So trust. Usually, when when you have rental a negatively gate property in a trust, you cannot use those losses against any other income. You cannot distribute those losses. Losses are quarantined in trust, and they can only be used or can be used to offset future income. So um, that that's that's the biggest on in my um, in my opinion. Other 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 things you can manage, I guess. But yeah, 
if you are really looking for a negative gate property and advantages of negative property, trust is not going to work for them. Okay. So, yes, um, but it also helps in regards to the borrowing capacity as well. I think we didn't talk about the borrowing capacity there, uh, but trust yes. can have, have their own borrowing capacity in future. If you keep investing in the same trust or especially positive cash flow property in your trust, trust will have its own borrowing capacity and you can limit your, you can safeguard your personal borrowing capacities for other things as well. Um, so, so that, that, that's, yeah, so, so, so there are certain benefits and certain limitations there, but you still, it still can work for lots of people, lots of investors. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I hear brokers or, you know, people who are not an astute investor, you would hear them say this all the time that, you know, buying a property in a trust reduces your borrowing capacity in, instead of increasing the borrowing capacity. And so the difference that, you know, I want to try and make here is that it might reduce the borrowing capacity at the start where you're going to True. buy because That's of right. the negative gearing. Uh, but from a long-term perspective, you would see that, you know, your borrowing capacity gets quarantined and you get more borrowing capacity because trust is almost treated as a separate person when it comes That's to true. bank looking at you and looking at the trust. And so you can set up a trust in such a sustainable manner that it can transfer over generations. It can move over years and years to come because it would be self-sustainable in nature. It, it's recouping its own debt. It's, um, it's managing its own liabilities. It's managing its own repayments, etc. And one key thing that we forgot to talk about on the pro side is the land tax side of things. And so yeah, that's true, I know yeah. Queensland land tax was a big thing Think when everyone was talking about it. And I remember making that comment out there that, you know, because we are talking about trusts upfront, we always tell people to understand what the land tax implications are for some of these uh, properties that you're going to acquire. And so it's an amazing vehicle to manage your land tax, isn't it? That's true, because there's different thresholds for personal um, property investment and the trust. When you buy property in a trust, there's a certain threshold. But if you have multiple trust, of course, yeah, the, the threshold gets increased with the difference because every trust will have their own threshold for the land tax purposes. But when you have multiple properties in your personal name, then all the assets in your name will be counted towards the calculation of land tax. So, yeah, that yes. gives you that. that. That was especially in the Queensland situation when they were looking into um, everybody's assets, who owns what, and then if you own any property in other states, you would that would be still be counted towards your land tax calculation in Queensland. Yeah, so that's that's definitely another advantage. Yes, and so one thing that was definitely an eye opener for me when I learned about trusts was that when you are looking at discretionary trust of family trust, you can have multiple family trusts and multiple discretionary trusts. A lot of people think that, oh, you can have only one family trust because you have one family That's or one true. wife, right? <laughs> but it's not related to one wife or one kid or one family. You can have 10 family trusts if you, you can't really have want it. That's true. That's true. There's no stopping yeah. it. And, and so that's some of these myths that we would really like to bust here. Now, we've talked a lot about discretionary trust. A very close brother or sister to discretionary trust is unit trusts. And uh, talk to us a bit of a difference between a unit trust and a family trust and where are Unit trusts more important than discretionary trust. Okay, unit trust. Um, yeah. So, unit trust it gives you some additional advantage, like a company as well, but it still gives you features of a trust. Okay. So, unit trusts are really used in in a situation where you have um, other your friends who are not related to you, or any you you want to invest in a property where you want to pull in some money from other sources from within the 
friends and other family groups which are not part of your family trust and you want to uh, use their borrowing capacity as well uh, to finance the projects you want to do so m- most of the time we look at the unit trust when people are development they are in the development space in property development space because that gives you flexibility in terms of investment um, the uh, certain you, you don't get the discretion of the distribution. It is dependent on how much you invest. You get the unit. It's like a shareholder. You get the unit holder, unit holding in there, like, a, like shares. You get units in the unit trust and it is tied up with your capital, how much your capital you invest in that particular trust. So it'll, it is, it gives you both, uh, best of both worlds, like company and the trust. So it is not uh, registered with ASIC as such, but it gives you that flexibility of a company's uh, or benefit of that company side of things, and you can manage that with other people outside your family group. So they are sure. very popular in development space, and people just buy property in unit trust, develop them, and then keep using the same vehicle. If they were, if they're similar people, or they can add and remove people easily. With the family trust, you don't want to do that. You want to just keep a family asset in a family trust. And when you're doing development, it is better to have different kind of trust which can give you other benefits as well yeah Yeah. and when you come when you talk about developments i think a lot of people what they tend to do is they tend to guide their developments through joint venture agreements that's true whereas trust is a perfect vehicle to basically embed your joint venture agreement into a trust so that you know it's much more legalized it's much more stamped um, much more transparent yeah yes correct and so you can use that to your advantage i think the best use is combining the two together when we talk about development world, right? So mm. you have uh, unit trust sitting there, which is your holding trust, which is buying the property in the first place, especially on the development side. But then you have discretionary trust that is a unit holder to the unit trust. And now you are talking about a completely different vehicle, right? Where you can move properties through this, you can use deed of partitions, and so that's true. Again, you can complicate as much. You, you can add layers of complication on top of it. Yes, to see. Yeah, definitely. That's that's uh, that's a thing. But with the basic one, unit trust is you can use unit trust for a development with the JV agreements and uh, deed of partition. There is an idea. There's a lot of other strategies you can uh, you can employ in, in in the development scenarios. Yeah. Yes, but the, the most important thing for this podcast is that, of course, you know a lot of these things. Go out and speak and discuss this with your accountants. That's true. Uh, go and seek financial advice if you want to. Go and seek a financial planner. This session is not for financial advice or tax advice or or financial planning advice. You should have done it in um, the first, course, first place. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that disclaimer is important, though. No? Yes, yes, yes. And so it's it's very very important. And so that's the key. That you know the the podcast is more about probing people in asking yeah. these questions to their accountant. The the podcast is not so much about taking the information from here and going and implementing it. Of course. You know, we have Soel here. If you are keen to come out and talk to us, uh, please reach out to him directly or please reach out to me or my team uh, and we'll be putting you in touch uh, with Sohel. Um, but thank you, Soel. This was really, really informative today. Thank you for coming out. Any parting words for today? No, no, no that, 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 nothing is happening today. That's, that's, that's it. So thanks for discussing this topic and hopefully our clients, they're going to uh, learn something from here and they'll definitely will take any questions if they need any. Um, more if the queries are coming just forward it to me and then i will uh, I'll answer those queries as well perfect okay. awesome thank you very much Thanks. listeners thank you very much audience keep smiling stay safe keep investing this is most checking out Idiot.